Turn with me your Bibles to the book of Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15. The, uh, the book of Psalms, if you have never read through this book, is uh, just absolutely incredible. I love the book of Psalms for a couple of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is because it's, it's just gut-level honest. And when you read in the book of Psalms, there's not a lot of gray area. You, you'll read from a person who may have been on the mountaintop of victory, or they may have been in the, the pit of despair or discouragement or difficulty. And the book of Psalms just lays it all out there for us. You see probably the range of human emotions more in the book of Psalms than any other book in Scripture, in my opinion, that you'll read. And so that's extremely powerful for us to read, regardless of where we may be in, 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 uh, in the circumstances of our lives. So Psalm chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. This is a psalm that was written by David. Now, uh, if, you, if you ever want to read through the book of Psalms, it's real easy to do that. You can read five a day and you'll be done in a month. There are 150 of them that are in there. Five a day will get you through it in 30 days. Most of those psalms you'll find are written by David. Others are written by a variety of other authors. Uh, Moses, for example, wrote two of the psalms that are there. But this morning, chapter 15, we're going to see, is written by David himself. And uh, looking at a message that I've chosen to entitle, All Access. How many of you remember, uh, in, when you think through the teachers that you've had in your lives, uh, how many of you remember that one teacher who is just the best of the best? Let me, let me see your hand. They're, they're, they're com- it just comes right to mind. I don't you put them down. Now, how many of you remember the one that uh, there is no price too high to pay to never cross paths with that person again, all right? Some hands are going up really, really quickly. Okay, you know, it's inevitable, right? I mean, through the course of school, you know, you kindergarten through 12th grade, you're going to have 13 different teachers. You throw in middle and high school, and you're changing classes, so you've got a lot of teachers in the mix. Well, you know, for me, there, there is one teacher that will remain nameless because I'm no dummy, and uh, uh, this is a small town, and uh, I went to school in this small town, and uh, these messages go on the internet, and so uh, they will remain nameless. But there was one teacher in the day, back in the day who struck fear in the little 65-pound body of Brooks Kale when I was a little guy. And uh, whenever you, if you were to say that teacher's name, instantly there comes a picture to mind, not of a person's face, not the color of their hair, but, but just the, the, uh, the inanimate qualities of life. One would be um, uh, uh, meanness. <laughs> that would be one place to start. And when you think of, of, of certain people, there are pictures that we have in our minds, right? I can throw out certain names of vocations, for example, and there's going to be a picture that comes to mind. Soldier. What comes to mind when you think of a soldier? It's not the, the physical appearance of a soldier. It's those qualities of, of just being persevering, being able to, to push through anything, to endure, you know, being just tough and gritty. That's, that's what it means to be a soldier that comes to mind. Uh, daredevil. All right, what comes to mind? It's not a person's face. It's that quality of just being crazy, off the charts crazy. Rocket scientist, what do you think of? You think of somebody who, who's incredibly gifted with intelligence. Those are things that you... That you think of what those are qualities that come to mind when you name the name instantly you begin to think of those certain qualities let me throw one more out christian so what comes to mind i'll tell you what comes to mind for a lot of people fake hypocrite fraud And you hear things like, oh, I, I lived next door to a Christian one time. Worst neighbor I ever had. Took me to court, complained about everything, grumbled about all the things I did. 
You might hear another person say, yeah, I, uh, I knew a Christian one time, worked with him, stabbed me in the back, lost my job because of him. You know, not everybody thinks so highly of Christians as we might think they do. And the reason for that is because there are far too many Christians who claim the name of Jesus by name and yet don't always exhibit the life of Christ on a day-in, day-out basis. You know, Christianity, our faith, cannot be a compartment of our lives, can it? It can't be something that we just compartmentalize. It's a part of who we are, uh, such as that, you know, well, I'm a Christian on Sundays, but then that kind of closed the lid on that compartment, then I go off to my other life. I mean, because I can't take my Christianity to work. I mean, bad things would happen if I do. I can't take my Christianity into my relationships, you know, because, because things aren't going to work if I try to do that. I, I can't take my Christianity onto the ball field. I can't take it onto my campus because it just doesn't really fit there. And so, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I kind of close that lid at certain times of my life, certain times in my week, and, 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 I, and I only take it out whenever it's needed or whenever it's going to be well accepted it but the problem with that is that it doesn't work that way that our christianity our faith is not to be compartmentalized that regardless of where you work or where you go to school or the people that you know what your relationships are like every circle that you navigate every area of life that you influence your faith goes with you and what we see here in psalm chapter 15 is a really really simple passage of scripture so the, the, this chapter is going to be very easy to understand there's not a whole lot of difficulty in being able to find out you know what's gray and what's you know what's black and what's white it's all black and white and what david does here is he captures for us in just five short verses in psalm chapter 15 what it looks like to carry the name of christ with us you say well well brooks um, th- th- this is old testament you know we don't we don't begin to get to christ till the new testament now that's not necessarily the case david's going to be talking about a relationship relationship with God, which for us, we understand, only comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. And what you're going to see here in Psalm chapter 15, we're going to read through it in just a moment, is it's going to be a real clear picture for us, an understanding that our faith, our Christianity, is something that that characterizes who we are. We are not defined by our vocation. We are not defined by the people we know. We're not defined by a salary or a bank account or or, uh, things that we possess. We are defined by our relationship with God or our lack of relationship with God, period. That's what defines us. Everything else spins out from that. It's who we are in God, whether we have a relationship with Him or whether we don't, that defines who we are. Everything else begins to spin around that center of where we stand with God. David wrote Psalm chapter 15. We don't know exactly when it was that he wrote it. But he writes it in an interesting fashion. He begins it, as you'll see in a moment, with two questions. And it's, it's in verse 1 that he asks the questions. Verses 2 through 5 is when he answers them. And he begins to describe the life that is yielded to God, a life that is evident on the outside that there is a relationship with God on the inside. Now here's what I want to caution you with before I even begin to read the first verse, is that as we read this list, this is not a list that tells us how to know God. This is going to be a list of qualities that are present in the life that already knows Him. Okay? So let's begin. Chapter 15, the book of Psalms, beginning in verse 1. David says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity, and works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. 
He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. I first encountered this passage of Scripture, the first that I can remember, probably 20 or so years ago. I was going through a book with a couple of other guys in the church that I was a part of at that time. And this book that we were reading was, was built around that one passage of Scripture. Now, I may have read Psalm chapter 15 before. I don't remember up to that point. But it was after that point that that chapter stuck in my mind from that point forward because it is such a clear, it is such a concise picture of what the Christian life looks like. It's not an exhaustive list. You're not going to find everything that encompasses the Christian life here in chapter 15. But listen, there's enough there to keep us busy, is it there? Enough to keep us busy in living a life that puts God on display. And so what David does is he asks these two questions. Look again at the first part of verse 1. He says, Lord, who may abide in your tent? And then the second question, who may dwell on your holy hill? What is it that David's asking? Those questions would have, would have been immediately recognizable to the Jewish audience that would have read these psalms first. Because when David asked that first question, Lord, who is it that might abide in your tent? There would have been a picture that would have come to mind of, of the tabernacle, of, of the tent. In fact, there was even a, a festival for the Jewish people that, that highlighted their time in the wilderness of, of, of pitching the tents and dwelling in temporary dwellings. But for the Jewish person, what immediately would come to mind would be the, the ultimate dwelling place of God in Old Testament times, the tabernacle. And they would have been reminded that that was a symbol of God's presence. And so David asks, Lord, who is it that might abide in your tent? Who might dwell on your holy hill? And what he's asking is not how does a person come to know you, but he's asking for a description of the person who walks with God. What does a person look like who has a living, abiding, growing relationship with you, God? The person who, who, who lives in your presence, who dwells on your holy hill, who abides in your tent, what does that person look like? That's what David's asking. And then he begins to answer the question beginning in verse 2. Let's walk through some of these a little more slowly. First thing out of the shoot, he says, He who walks with integrity. What is integrity? You know, we throw that word around a good bit. What, what is integrity? Here, here's the simple definition that comes to my mind. It's doing what is right regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the consequences. That's integrity. Adam Clark worked in London many, many, many years ago. He worked for an employer that sold fine silk to the upper class in London. One day his employer took Adam aside and he showed him, in the midst of his training, how he could measure the silk. And as he measured it out, he could subtly stretch the silk. So that in reality, he wasn't necessarily selling 12 inches of silk. As he subtly stretched it in measuring, he would really only be selling, say, 11 inches. Basically, the customer would be ripped off, but the company profits would begin to soar because they were making money on something that they really weren't even selling. As the employer showed Adam how to stretch that silk in the measuring process so that he could rip off the customer and increase the company profits, Adam said to his employer with boldness, he said, sir, your silk might stretch, but my conscience won't. That's integrity. It's doing what is right. Who defines what is right? It's God himself. He is the author of 
righteousness. God defines what is right. Scripture describes what is right. And so when we look at what integrity is, it is doing what is right regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. If you've ever studied ethics before, as I have, you'll find that there is a buzzword that's been around for a few decades now called situational ethics. It's determining what to do based on that situation at the moment. Listen, that is not a biblical perspective. Right is right, regardless of the cost, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of who's involved. Right is just right. And what David describes here of the person who walks with God, who dwells with God, who exemplifies a relationship with God, the first thing he says is that it is he who walks with integrity. That picture of walking with integrity is not a one-time demonstration. It's not just a brief flash of integrity here and there, like, wow, I did the right thing, right? You know, maybe a year ago, it was 15 months ago, but I, yeah, I've, done, I've shown integrity. I, you know, it, it's been a while, but yeah. I, no, David is showing the picture of one who walks in integrity. Every step is a step of integrity. Every day is another day where this person who knows, has a relationship with God, who knows Christ, where they demonstrate integrity through their life, in the workplace, in their relationships, on their campus, everywhere they go, every decision, they make is rooted in integrity. Job said that he wouldn't put integrity aside for the remainder of his life. He would die with integrity, Job said in Job 27 verse 5. It was that important. And when you look at people in Scripture, when you read of how God views doing what is right, he places it on a very, very high standard. Let me get you to flip over with me, if you will, to the book of Proverbs chapter 2. We'll just show you a couple things real quickly. Just uh, just two places where Scripture speaks elsewhere of the quality of integrity. Proverbs chapter 2. When you get there, look down to verse 7. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking of God, it says in verse 7, Proverbs 2, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, and He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, he preserves the way of his godly ones. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Proverbs chapter 11 says that our integrity is a guide for us. As we apply it to our lives, it guides us. And so the very first thing David focuses on here is that quality of integrity. So let me ask you, is is there any area of your life that is off limits where you do not apply it to integrity consistently? Maybe for you, you're a person, you love God and you have a relationship with God, but yet there is a segment of your life, maybe it's the workplace, as you run your business or as you manage those that are under your authority and your leadership, maybe for you, there are certain areas there where you don't apply integrity. You, you bend the rules just a bit. You shade things just a bit. Why? So that you can try to increase your profits or <clears throat> advance yourself or accomplish some other goal that you have in mind, and yet you sacrifice integrity in the process, here's what's going to happen. For those of us, or for those who choose not to apply integrity, you, you just need to prepare for distance in your relationship with God. Because if we don't live with integrity, we are not going to have a sense of closeness to the Lord. <laughs> because He is a God who is completely righteous, completely perfect. And He honors those who show integrity. He guards the way of the integri- those with integrity. He uh, directs those who have integrity. But the one who chooses not to apply it consistently, we can expect there to be distance. And the cost is going to be far greater than if we'd only done the right thing. And so David says, back in Psalm 15, verse 2, Who is the one that might walk closely with God? He who walks with 
integrity. Verse 2, he mentions another quality. He says, and works righteousness. You know, you really can't separate those two. Because if a person has integrity as a character quality in their life, that integrity is going to be displayed through their works of righteousness as they work it out in their daily living. It's the quality of integrity that drives the decisions of their life. Alexander the Great once learned of one of his soldiers who had been behaving poorly, bringing Alexander the Great himself and their whole entire army into into reproach. Alexander the Great learned of this particular soldier. He called him into his presence. He sat him down. He said, soldier, what is your name? He said, sir, my name is Alexander. (laughs) Alexander the Great simply said to him, you either need to change your behavior or you need to change your name. The believer who claims, claims the name of Christ, listen closely, will not be perfect. We have our areas where we have to grow. My areas where growth is needed may look different than your areas where growth is needed. You may already have strength in an area where I am weak, and so we do not judge one another. But we also do not excuse those places in our lives that are not yielded to God, where we are not displaying righteousness the way he calls us to. Does that make sense? And what we have to understand is that where we wear the name of Christ, we are instantly on display. And when we wear the name of Christ, God expects of us, as we'll see here in just a moment, he expects of us to live a life that puts him on display in a way that makes him look really, 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 really good. He calls us to not only walk in integrity day by day, but he calls us as well to demonstrate that integrity through works of righteousness. Flip over with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to move a little more quickly in just a second, but Ephesians chapter 2. You say, Brooks, I don't know if these these good works are are really that important. I I don't place as much emphasis on them as you seem to. Look at what it says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul wrote this letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 8 is a verse you may have heard before. We often stop short, however. Um, I want us to read these three verses. Verse 8, begin there. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you realize that you, Christian, were created, one of the purposes for which you were created was to work works of righteousness. It was for good works. That's why you were put on this earth, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, God is going to make it easy for us to do what is right. He will make it easy for us to do what is good. The choice is ours. But there are opportunities that abound for us to do the good thing, that abound for us to do the right thing. The difficulty is that many times we become our own obstacle to stepping into works of righteousness or to living lives of integrity. And what David says here is that 
All I'm saying, if you want to be one who is characterized by relationship with God, if you want to walk closely with Him, if you want to have a relationship with Him that is vibrant, where it's as though you're in the same tent together, all I'm saying, David says, is that you're going to have to walk with integrity because He's holy, and you're going to have to do works of righteousness because He's righteous. And you can't have both sides of the, uh, of the, uh, of the coin here. It's going to be one or the other. Well, we can't live life on our terms and then enjoy the blessings that God wants to give us. We have to be living lives that are yielded to Him, and that's going to show itself outwardly as we live with integrity and as we walk in righteousness. Well, what's the next thing that he says? Look, look again back in chapter 15, book of Psalms, verse 2. He mentions a third quality here, and speaks truth in his heart. You know, in that one verse, verse 2, David covers just about every area of life. He covers the the motivation of our life, the heart issues, integrity. He covers the actions of our lives, lifestyle of our lives, that we work righteousness. And he covers the words that we speak. We speak truth in our heart. Why is it that speaking truth is so important for us to live a life that reflects Christ? It's because Jesus described himself that way. What did he say? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth. In the life. So what does it look like then when a believer, a Christian, is known as one who speaks out of both sides of their mouth? You can't trust what they say. They're deceptive. They'll tell you one thing, then they'll do another. They, they lie. They cheat. They deceive. What, what does that say? They slander. They gossip. What does that say? It's not reflective of Christ. So what David is saying is that if you want to be known as one who has a close abiding walk with God, we keep coming back to this, then it's going to be evidence through the words that you speak. We just did a whole series just a few months ago entitled Words that talks about the importance importance, the value of the words we speak, how they reflect Christ, how they build up others, and how they ultimately can, can, can speak life into those around us. David says, who may abide in your tent? Who might dwell on your holy hill? He who speaks truth in his heart. How easy is it for you to just tell the truth? And if it's difficult for you to tell the truth, what is it that keeps you from being honest? Is it fear of man? Is it a life that's dishonorable? And the truth would be too embarrassing to own up to? David says the one who knows him will reflect him by speaking truth in his heart. Verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In other words, we put those together and we find that the one who knows God, who walks with him, who dwells with him, doesn't wrong others by their words, by their actions. You say, Brooks, is there, are you telling me I, I'm not called to speak truth into the life of others? That I'm not called to correct? No, we're not saying that at all. Sometimes words of truth will hurt, but they won't harm. Does it make sense? You know, when I go to the dentist, say if I need a filling, the dentist doesn't say it this way, but he could. He could say, Brooks, this is going to hurt, but I'm not going to harm you. (laughs) There's going to be some pain associated with this correction here because your tooth needs a filling, but I'm not going to like bring it into your life over what I'm about to do here. It's going to hurt you, yes, but I'm not going to harm you. In fact, what you'll find is because of this momentary hurt, you will be better off as a result of it. And there are times that we do speak into the lives of others, and they speak into our lives, and they share words that might be hard for us to hear. 
You know, if, if I'm a selfish individual and it's blatant to everybody else, I would, I would hope somebody would make that clear to me so that I could be aware of that because it might be a blind spot in my life and it would hurt to hear it, but you know what? I'll be helped as a result of it. Why? Because, because selfishness will shipwreck my life. And so what David is not saying here, he's not saying just speak words of fluffiness to everybody all the time. No, no he's saying in that passage in verse 3, don't slander don't do evil to your neighbor. Don't take up a reproach against a friend. Don't bring harm to them. And a person who knows Christ lives this way. They don't bring harm to those around them. They're not known as a person who just wrecks other people's lives. You probably know people like that. Sadly, some of them probably are in church somewhere today, maybe even right here. There have been times where we've been those kinds of people, haven't we? David says that there's no place for that in the life of one who knows God. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, Here, here's what a person looks like who walks with God. He says, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised. In other words, the one who knows God, who loves him, who dwells with him, hates sin and even the association with it. Here, here's what gets us in trouble is that we see the line that we know God doesn't want us to cross in whatever area it might be. On the other side of that line is sin. On, the other, on this side of the line is righteousness. And what we often do is we see how close we can get to that line, right? How close can I get? You ask students when it comes to the issue of dating, what is the first question that's going to come up? How far is too far? In other words, where's that line? How close can I get to that line without going over? Why is it that we don't naturally ask as children of God, as people who've been bought with a price, as those who have yielded our lives to Christ by our own confession, Lord, forgive me, take over my life. Why is it that we don't just instinctively see how far we can stay away from that line, that we not, might not bring hurt and harm to ourselves, that we might not bring reproach to the name of Christ, that we might not bring reproach upon others? Why is it that we have to see how close we can get to that line when it comes to sin and not just stay away from it? David says the one who dwells with God is one... Ultimately, the way he describes it, he says he does, in his eyes, a reprobate is despised. In other words, anything that has to do with sin at all, is, he abhors it with every ounce of who he is. And our response to sin is one of three things. Either we hate it, we entertain it, or we embrace it. And there's really no other option. And maybe for some today, for you, as has been the case for me many, many times and will be still, the areas of our lives, it may be an attitude, it may be an action, where there's sin that has been there for far too long. And we've entertained it, or we've embraced it, but we don't hate it. And the first prayer to pray is, Lord, Help me to see this sin that will own me with the type of hatred that you do. You know why God hates sin so much? Two reasons. One, he is perfectly holy and pure. He's never been touched by sin as an act of his own will. God has never committed one sin. He is without stain, without blemish, perfectly holy. The only interaction with sin that he had was when his son Jesus died on the cross because of it. That's why he hates it. And he knows it'll do to you the same thing that it do, did to him. Because sin, according to Romans, brings death. David says the one who dwells with God 
is one in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Honors those who fear the Lord. In other words, he upholds the godly. He, 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 he uh, gives encouragement to the godly. He spurs the godly on. He's evidently on the same side as those who walk with God. He has a sense of community with those who share his own faith. But then he says at the end of verse 4, he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. What does that mean? It means he places godly living above his own personal comfort. <laughs> his word is his word. Right is right. And if it costs me, so be it. But I'm going to honor God through my life. Look at what he says in verse 5 as we close. He doesn't put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. What's he speaking of there? He's speaking specifically of being a good manager of the finances that God puts at his disposal. And it's interesting to me that in this list, David only takes five verses to write what captures the life of the one who honors God, that he includes this here. It's interesting to me. Doesn't put out his money at interest, doesn't take advantage of others, doesn't, he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. He treats others right, doesn't take advantage of them, and he handles the resources God gives them in a way that honors God. How does this passage end? Verse 5, he who does these things will never be shaken. There is a sense of stability that comes to the godly. You can read Psalm chapter 1, you can read through the book of Proverbs, and what you'll find consistently is that for those who are godly, they're not shielded from discouragement, they're not shielded from difficult days, hard days still come in the lives of those who walk with God, we know that, but there is a sense of stability that comes to the life of the one who dwells with God and walks with him consistently that can be found nowhere else on the face of this earth. And David says at the end of this psalm, whoever does these things will never be shaken, will never be shaken. Again, this list doesn't make us right with God. This list is demonstrated through our lives because we're already right with him through relationship with Jesus Christ. So how do we summarize this? How do we capture all this and put it into a, to a way that makes sense? Let me just give it to you and you can jot it down and it'll be easy for you to remember. Access to God results in, in, in expectations from man. If you have access to God through a relationship with Christ, along with that access goes expectations. It's that simple. That God has saved you by the blood of his own son. He's called you by his grace. He has led you into a relationship with himself. As you turn from sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Along with that access comes expectations. And as we live out the life of godliness, and this, this, is a ver this is a passage of scripture that David probably wrote in three minutes, and yet it will take a lifetime to live it out. That as we live out that passage of scripture, Psalm 15, you may want to even commit it to memory, that as you display these through your life, there will come in you a sense of godliness and a sense of closeness to God because it can only be done in his strength through you that you will not pay a price for it will be that valuable and so looking back through this list let me just ask a question as we finish things out which of those would you say needs the most attention for you right now today with heads bowed and eyes closed I just want to read back through this list and as you listen, I'll read slowly. I want you to listen for the one that you would say, you know, Brooks, that's the area where I most need to be attentive today. This is the area that I most need to address so that I might not bring reproach against the name of Christ, so that I might be able to honor God through the way I live my life. Number one, do you walk with integrity in every area of life?
Number two, do you work righteousness? Are there actions that you engage in that demonstrate righteousness to others? Number three, do you speak truth consistently? Number four, are you able to say that your words and your actions do not wrong others? Number five, do you hate sin as God does in your life and even the association with it? Number six, do you actively hold up others who are godly in their lives? Number seven, do you place godly living even before your own personal comfort? And number eight, do you display faithfulness with the finances and resources that God has given you? Lord, we know that in a list like this, there's enough there to keep us busy for the rest of our lives. And Lord, we thank you that it's not a list that we have to live up to that gives us a relationship with you. Uh, Otherwise, none of us would know you. Lord, we are saved by your grace. We're saved because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But God, help us to understand and to remember that along with that access to you comes expectations. Lord, we can't just live life any old way we want and claiming that we prayed a prayer somewhere back in the past and we've got our fire insurance, we're going to heaven, but still live life the way we want. Lord, it doesn't work that way. That is not Christianity according to your word. Lord, a relationship with you changes life. Lord, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes the motivations of our heart. It changes us. And Lord, that change comes over the period of many years, if not decades. But Lord, change should be noticeable. And I pray that for us in this church, that you would make us to be mature, that you'd make us to be deep in our relationships with you. Lord, that it will be noticeable, not for our glory, but for yours alone. That when people know us, they see that we just live life differently. We're not perfect. We don't have every answer on the face of this earth. And Lord, we have our own set of struggles and difficulties that come. But Lord, may they see in us a maturity of a life that is changed by the presence of Christ in us. Lord, where we treat people right and we walk with integrity and we speak truth to where we handle your resources and the finances you give us in a way that honors you. We don't do people wrong, but we seek to uplift them and to encourage them and to hold them up. And so, Father, may we be recognized that way. Lord, for those who don't know you, even here this morning, I pray that they would understand that the most important decision they'll ever make is the decision to turn from their sin and to invite Jesus Christ to take over their life, to forgive them and to be first for them from this day forward. Lord, he's already done the work. He paid for our sin. All that's waiting perhaps is that invitation to come in, to forgive, and to take over. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make, I pray that we'd make them today. And Lord, where that one came to mind, that this is where I need to really focus my attention, may we be intentional, may we be prayerful, Lord, may we be focused and dedicated. But Lord, may we understand that we'll never live the Christian life on our own strength. That it's a daily submission to your Holy Spirit as a believer of saying, Spirit, live your life through me. And so, Lord, it's a partnership. We yield to you. You live your life through us. Help us to make sure you're the one on the throne and not we ourselves. And as you're seen through us, Lord, may you be the one that gets the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.